I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When I actually decided that I wanted to like be an entrepreneur and start my first company, I was met with so much trepidation. People were like, you're a DJ. What are you talking about? We met our other co-founder. Fast forward, when we were doing our operating agreement, he withheld equity from us. We went to all of our investors and we said, listen, we need to get this guy out of our company. An hour before we served him papers, he served us papers and he completely shut us out. I will never forget, I went to my friend's bar drinking so much tequila, thinking my life was over. What is up, guys? I am recording live and direct from New York. I would do you a New York accent, but I can't, and I don't think anyone would like it, so I won't. I love this episode. You know when you just sit down and you just chat, and it feels like you could just chat for hours? This was one of those episodes we talked about everything, from failed business, Hannah giving the insight into her crazy lawsuit that she had about her previous business, but also beyond that in terms of health, in terms of IVF, in terms of periods, in terms of female founders, pretty much everything in between. So I really think you'll love this episode. If anything, it's just a fun chat. It's great to be reporting live from New York, the Working Hard, Hardly Working podcast on tour. So I hope you really enjoyed this episode and as always, have a great day. Hannah Bronfman is an entrepreneur, angel investor, DJ, and author. She is among New York's most renowned health and well-being public figures, responsible for building the popular online portal HBFit. Before this, Hannah built a reputation as an influencer through her work as a set DJ, playing at events for high-profile brands, including Gucci. Hannah's first book, Do What Feels Good, was published in January 2019. Having spent most of her career balancing multiple streams of work, Hannah is no stranger to the hectic New Yorker lifestyle. As a DJ, Hannah's early 20s were particularly manic, the late nights and junk food leading to eventual burnout. As a result, Hannah pivoted and took measures to prioritize her health, documenting her recipes and workouts on Instagram along the way. Now, with fans located globally, HB Fit stands as a hub to anyone looking to put their well-being first, whether this is adding to your unique skincare routine or gaining access to productivity and business advice. Over the years, Hannah has established herself as an angel investor across multiple industries. Her investment ethos and strategic involvement is to help minority founders who make better for you and better for the planet products and platforms. Alongside this, Hannah talks about entering motherhood after sharing her incredible journey with IVF Online. Hannah is also a vocal advocate for social and racial justice and is dedicated to using her platform to increase her followers' awareness of black history and the challenges the world faces when it comes to diversity and racism. Today with Hannah, we cover the entire scope. We talk about her career as a DJ, finding the calm among the storm, failed businesses, racial challenges, and the global underestimation of female founders. Thank you so much for joining me. You're so welcome. I'm so excited to be here. It's so great to have you. I can't believe that we're in like New York and we're getting people like you on here. I want to 
get straight into your background and your career and kind of how you got to where you are. I loved reading about your career. There's so many different aspects, but it also really makes sense when you look at what your passions are and kind of what you talk about online and all of these things. It's definitely very inspiring. So I feel like a lot of people will want to hear exactly how you got to that point. So I believe you started interning at fashion brands. I did, yeah. So growing up in the city, in New York City, was definitely, you know, a fast life. Mm -hmm. And my first internship was when I was 15 at Michael Kors. It's funny because I work with Michael Kors a little bit now, and Michael always loves to talk about how, you know, he's like, your first job was with me. I'm like, yes, it was. <laughs> um, and then I I worked at Ralph Lauren, but I was working for Rugby, RIP. After that internship, I then did some music PR. My dad was in the music industry, mm-hmm. um, and I had interned at Universal um, in the PR department. And then my last internship before college was actually in Paris for Warner Music in PR. And that was like a crazy summer. It was the summer before I went to college. And I'll never forget, it was the same summer that Paris Hilton put out Stars Are Blind. I was in charge of putting together this crazy launch party for Paris. One night only, Paris in Paris at VIP room. You know, I have to say, I learned so much through that specific experience with Paris. She's... um, a real boss. And at the time, obviously, she was really known for her reality show. And, right. and the Paris Hilton that we know now, the, mm-hmm. the businesswoman, wasn't really front and center there. Right. But I got to see it behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, this person is famous for being herself. Right. And that concept stuck with me. What year was that? That was in 2006. Right. So social media's not even really taken off at this point. Oh, so it's no, kind no, of no. like, it's not even, I mean, I know Facebook had just started at that point. But oh, yeah. Instagram's nowhere near. Oh, we're not kind of. No, and so we're the still concept, like five years from Instagram. Right. Yeah. And so the concept of anyone being famous for being themselves is just so insane. I mean, even when I started on Instagram in like 2015, the whole idea of like, being an influencer in any way. Influencers were only like musicians, models, like actors, 100%. like they existed through something else and mm-hmm. then social was how they showed themselves yep. rather than kind of coming up through social and being, you know, famous for being themselves. Exactly. So I can imagine that was quite a an insane thing to be around at that stage. It really was. And, you know, that part of her career where she was a singer, mm-hmm. you know, now she's a DJ, she's an entrepreneur, she has so many different businesses. Um, she's very deep in Web3, all the things. But then she was a reality star and she was breaking into her singing career. And even the way that she wanted to be presented and like, you know, what was going on the screens, what bottles were on the table, right. just like it was really inspiring, right. even though it was very chaotic. Right. It was one of those summers that I was was like, oh, wow, there's really something there. And this is going to be like the future. You know, she was the first person I saw in real life who, like you said, wasn't a movie star or, a you know, a famous actress, singer, blah, blah, blah. Like that was really becoming a megastar. What's so interesting is I kind of think about how much that's always been looked down on, like being famous for no reason yep. is the obviously like the kind of quote unquote. And, you know, there are arguments for and against and all of this. But, you know, I think that's been one of the biggest criticisms of like influencers. It's also like, why are you like, why are you famous? Like right. that has been a lot of the thing. Yeah. Um, and I feel as 
well, you know, when you look at some of the biggest success stories, like people like that, obviously, ideally, you are famous for being yourself. Like, as in, like, I can imagine it's probably a lot more relieving than being famous for kind of playing an act or like whatever it might right, be, right. as valid as that is. Right. Um, but I find it so interesting that there's kind of like so much criticism for it, especially when it doesn't just happen by chance. It's also like people need to express interest in that person being themselves in order for them to, you know, keep growing in popularity. Of course. I mean, it's the community that brings them up, right? right. If the demand's not there, they're not going to be, especially before social media. If the demand's not there, it's not going to be, you know, why would you be booking them for more shows, etc. Right. At that stage, what was your like big goal? Like, what did you want to be? At that stage, I mean, I was just getting ready to go to college and I really was focused on my artwork. Mm -hmm. I was going to art school. I was just about to start art school. I was a sculpture major. And at that point, I thought I was going to be an artist. And I didn't necessarily know what that was going to look like or if I would be a successful artist or be making money at being an artist. But that's certainly what I went to school for and where I wanted to focus my passions. Mm. And at what point did that change, if that changed, or did you kind of fall yeah. into what you ended up doing? Yeah, so I went to a really small liberal arts college in upstate New York called Bard, and I studied fine art there. And when I was there, I started DJing. Right. There was this one bar, and basically we were so sick of like, you know, it was like a very towny vibe and just like rock and roll. And we were like, right. no, we need some hip hop. We need yeah. to have like a fun night at the bar. We convinced the bar owner, Michael, to let my friend Henry and I start DJing one night a week. We were like, listen, we'll triple your revenue. It'll be so fun. Like you already let all of us into the bar anyway. Right. We did that, and it was automatically every Thursday night we had this party going and my friend Henry and I literally taught ourselves how to DJ on like just like an old pioneer box we weren't even using CDJs or turntables we were just using the mixer and it just became our thing and basically we probably started that in the fall and then by summer and this was our sophomore year and so by summer I was living in the city. I was like trying to convince some of my friends who owned clubs and bars in New York to let me DJ for them. That in itself was really hard to break yeah, into. Right. But finally, my friends who I mentioned to you this morning who run Black Seed Bagel, at the time, they ran a club in New York called The Jane. And I was begging them to let me DJ. And they were like, listen, we we kind of have everything lined up for the summer. Yeah. They had a cancellation one day. Like, literally, they were like, our DJ is not showing up tonight. Like, we need you here in two hours. And I was like, I'm there. (laughs) And I remember that that night, we ended up, like, closing down at 5 in the morning. Like, last song, people were still, like, on, like, tables and chairs dancing. And... I pretty much impressed my friends. And they were like, all right, Hannah, like, we'll make this a thing and we'll slot you in and and so I started DJing that summer in nightclubs. I obviously then went back to school, still had our Thursday night party. Again, the next summer came, DJing nightclubs. And then when I graduated college in 2010, which was, you know, the height of the economic decline here in, Mm. in, in the States, and no one was getting a corporate job. Right. I certainly was not getting a job in PR. Mm-hmm. And I either was going to be this like starving artist who needed to make an income for, you know, my studio rent and materials or I could, you know, continue DJing making some cash. Right. So 
that's kind of what I ended up doing for the next like two and a half years. I was DJing like three to six nights a week. And it was a really fast and fun lifestyle, but it was also completely unsustainable. Right. And like I woke up one morning and had full burnout. Right. And needed to make a, you know, a real switch. Yeah. I mean, that's insane. Even the kind of like thought of just starting it because you wanted a club night in your town. Yeah. And then going on to, I mean, how did you even have the balls to like persuade people to let you play at their nightclub? I mean, like, I feel like if I was starting anything, I would just be like, play it small for a bit. Again, like I was knocking on my friend's doors being like, Mm -hmm. please let me do this. Please let me do this. And they were like, we've never heard you. We're not going to just give you like a Thursday night. Right. And so thank God I had that cancellation. Then from that, it just kind of grew. And I got like residencies at different places. Like there was this one club called Sway in Mm -hmm. New York that, you know, the Sunday night party was like, that was it. Right. And I like had to beg the manager to let me play I started out on Wednesday nights there eventually I got to play a Sunday night you know but it took time I mean it, I had to like prove myself also like some of the clubs in New York had different vibes so mm-hmm. I also had to make sure that my music knowledge which I will say I pride myself on my music right. knowledge I come from a musical family and so my knowledge runs deep yeah and so I can cater to different audiences I think that foundation of kind of just music history and music knowledge is how I was able to then move out of this nightclub world right. into like corporate DJing. I heard that kind of like when you were a DJ, kind of as you said, you woke up burnt out, you found yourself in an unhealthy routine of waking up late, not eating right. I can imagine though at the same time you probably really loved what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And how then did you kind of put two and two together to be like, well, I love this, but... Yeah. I'm gonna need to I didn't need to move on. Yeah. So I will say growing up in New York, my mom is really hands-on in the art world. Right. I kind of grew up going to galas and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I was definitely in the scene mm-hmm. and I was going to these kind of like art dinners and things, and I was meeting people from corporate situations. And this one friend of mine who worked at Dolce and Gabbana was like, hey. I want you to DJ our fashion night out. Now, you're too young to even know what fashion night out is. But basically, there was like a decade when Vogue would declare this one night in September as fashion night out. And basically, all of the boutiques on Madison Avenue would have DJs, champagne, people could come in, shop. And it was a way of just like getting people to interact with the brands and shop. That's so cool. It happened for like literally eight years and then they like shut it down. Mm -hmm. And this is back in, you know, 2011. And I DJed for Dolce & Gabbana and I didn't even know to ask any questions. Mm Mm-hmm. And I opened that night for Justin Bieber. Oh, my God. And I was playing with DJ Ruckus. And when I realized what was going on, like, they let me borrow a dress. And I was all of a sudden, I was, like, opening for Bieber in 2011. Dude, I was like, oh, wow. Like, I should be getting paid for this. Right. Okay. You weren't getting paid like, for that. No. I, like, I was like, whoa, this is crazy. And then I realized, like, okay, by the way, this event was, like, 6 p.m. Mm. until 8 o'clock. And I was like, wow. The timing is, like, normal life timing. Right. There's 
cash mm-hmm. and these brands want me to wear their clothes. Yeah, that's that's so cool. I was like, <laughs> okay, this sounds a lot better than like, you yeah. know, DJing for people who are absolutely blasted at midnight to 4 a.m. Right. And that was the window that kind of I saw that I was like, all right, that's where I want to move. And so how does someone go then from, you know, you're DJing in nightclubs, you realize you want to be more in the corporate world. Yeah. How... Uh, Did you kind of start to make that switch? So I basically was really, I felt really uncomfortable. Like the way I had been like knocking on people's doors on nightclub vibes. I was like, I I feel like I can't do that in the corporate world. Right. So I actually like made up an assistant. I've done that. (laughs) Yeah. So I had this email address Mm -hmm. for Virginia Clark Nelson, Mm -hmm. who was actually, yeah, that's the name of my best friend's nanny growing up. (laughs) I asked her first if I could use it and if she had a Gmail account. She's like, no, I use Hotmail. I'm like, okay, great. Perfect. So Ginny was kind of the person who would do outreach and, you know, eventually when when I got the gigs would kind of try to negotiate the fee a bit and would coordinate my fittings and whatever. And it was all me, but I didn't know what else to do because I certainly wanted to show up and be the best at what I was doing and feel like the people I was working for or working with Mm -hmm. liked working for me. I felt like if they knew that I was the one over email being difficult, that it would change their perception of me. Which is actually very fair. And I I would also, I'd even say with people starting out in the influencer world who don't necessarily have an agency or management Uh yeah um i mean i literally used to do that all the time i'd message and i'd be like i'm emailing on behalf of grace beverly (laughs) and uh please um and i actually i mean it also is quite a good exercise in being assertive yeah i feel like you're happy being assertive if you're playing a role right um which especially as a woman like we're kind of taught that assertiveness is bossiness etc etc and so it's quite easy to think like oh, no, I need to kind of like hold back on that front. Um, Whereas just being able to, as you say, kind of have that front on and say someone else can be difficult for you, which I think is, I mean, it's so interesting that we're kind of happy to do that. And we have it in us. Yes. But we almost have this like thing that holds us back by being like, no, I'm asking for something quite reasonable. Like I'm asking either to be paid on time or I'm asking for like, you know, any of these various different things. Very reasonable for you to request yourself. But, you know, we have this, I guess, block. And in terms of like women, we are meant to be very likable as well. Like there's a re- definitely a correlation between being likable and being easy and yeah. being kind of successful. And I wanted to be seen as being easy to work with mm-hmm. and someone who just shows up, gets right. the job done, everyone's happy. Right. Um, I didn't want people to think like, oh, she's, you know, asking for too much or right. what. Even though, I, again, I thought these were basic things. Right. You know, I just wanted to preserve the vibe. Yeah. And so that was my way of like, preserving it so since then you've kept up DJing even though you've gone through kind of a lot of different iterations of your career and we'll go on to talk about that how come you kept that up is it passion is it enjoyment is it the money is it so in the beginning it was definitely the excitement the um, love and passion for music the outfits like getting to do cool events and getting to know like these kind of corporate people and kind of expanding my network in that way. Mm -hmm. So I ended up, you know, DJing a lot for fashion houses, publishing houses, technology brands, things like that. And so it was very much this kind of corporate environment. Literally, there were five girls who were kind of the go-to DJs in that 
space. And eventually, as Instagram started to also become a thing, I realized that it was all just a door into a marketing department. Right. For these companies. Yeah. And that they could lead to larger opportunities. It's really interesting as well because I constantly see people on social media who have, you know, part of their job that's not social first and they work with bigger clients on that front. And the co-signing of working with big clients, like you were saying, like D&G, like all of these ones that we know the names that wouldn't necessarily work with people on an influencer basis, you know, at least not at a kind of smaller size. And so having that kind of co-signing and you're almost able to get the corporate world's co-signing you for the Instagram and the Instagram probably co-signing you for the corporate world when they're also thinking about getting reach and all of these different things. 100%. And it's funny because it all started happening organically before Instagram was even a thing. Right. Right? So then it was just like all of a sudden when Instagram came out and I had kind of made that switch into corporate life of DJing already – I was showcasing really like my health journey on Instagram because that's what I was really hoping that I was going to take ownership back into like my actual lifestyle by having that change from nightclub to corporate. And those are the things that I was kind of sharing on social media, which then kind of spiraled into like what my job is now. Right. And I think what's also really interesting is that before social media, anyone's career was very much encouraged to be single faceted. Like you're you're known for one thing Mm -hmm. and you're celebrated for one thing or like all of these different things and having too many of those kind of dilutes it rather than strengthens it. Whereas Instagram, I guess, probably because it's a function of the fact that like people use it both for their personal life and, you know, influencers and other people use it for their careers as well there became this shift in terms of careers in terms of you know you were DJing and there was probably when people would see you at a corporate event like looking amazing doing the DJing all being super glamorous they would have thought one thing and having being able to have that insight in the kind of Instagram social space and be like oh actually this is what she ate for breakfast I mean you can see just how I mean it's a it's a reality TV basically like insight that you're able to obviously dictate yourself but it's so interesting then to kind of see that shift of moving from people liking people who are inaccessible to being able to access people that they wouldn't usually be able to access. 100%. 100%. And honestly like it was that um, kind of behind the scenes look at like my life that I feel like people really gravitated towards just the everyday nuances of whatever making breakfast here's the smoothie I'm making here's a supplement I'm taking Mm -hmm. I'm doing this workout or whatever And then, you know, kind of my outward appearance being this, like, glamorous DJ who's traveling all over and doing, like, those types of things. And because of, like, the way that we're all kind of taught, or at least we were prior to this, you know, Gen Z generation, Mm -hmm. to be doing one thing and doing it well, when I actually decided that I wanted to, like, be an entrepreneur and start my first company – I was met with so much trepidation. Like right. people were like, you're a DJ. What are you talking yeah. about? That was a pretty like hardening experience when I went from, you know, DJing to then fully like starting this tech company. But I basically co-founded a company called Beautified, which mm-hmm. was a way to book last minute beauty appointments through curated lists of salon and spas. And basically that came to be because I was no longer DJing for nightclubs, but right. rather corporate vibes. And I felt like, okay, I need I need to look a different way. I need to be a bit more presentable. Mm-hmm. I want to have a blowout, my nails done, things like that. Right. And I'm from New York City. So I knew all the places to go. But Uber had just come out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, 
I don't want to have to call around to all the salons to find out who has the last minute appointment. Mm -hmm. There's got to be a better on-demand solution for this. And so we were the first on-demand beauty app um, that came out. We came out before Glam Squad, before Priv. And it actually was prior to the beauty industry moving in home. Right. Right. Now experts and stylists come to you in your home. Right. But this was prior to that. Yeah. And I would also say the UK, we haven't even adapted to that. As in like there are options, but I, it's rare. No, I know that because I had a someone <laughs> who reached out to me who was basically trying to start beautified in right. the UK and it completely failed. Right. Because the behavior of the consumer is not there. Right. Which I find very fascinating. Yeah. The UK fascinates me on many levels on on the consumer side of things. So yeah, so I, I started this company with um, a girlfriend of mine who was um, a really close friend of my boyfriend, who's now my husband. And then this guy who my co-founder Annie and I had both heard about this guy right. through multiple people. Basically, he already had like the tech done. Right. And we were going to come in with the brand and, you know, the sales and hit mm-hmm. the pavement and get all the salon signed up, get the press, do, 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 and do and do the damn thing. And essentially what ended up happening, we ended up raising money Mm -hmm. from a really prominent VC named NEA. Uh, We closed on Mm $1.2 and we launched in three cities. And if you were a salon and you didn't know about us, you were behind. Like, we were really, like, you know, we had our proprietary software. We were doing integrations. We were working on integrations with MindBody. Like, we were really on it. Mm -hmm. But the raising money process was really hard. Mm Mm-hmm. I probably had 70 meetings before I was able to get the money through the door. A majority of those meetings were rooms full of white men Mm -hmm. who treated me with, I mean, disdain is the wrong word, but like it was a really sad and and hard experience. I think doubly on top of that, I mean, we know that the female funding stats are dire. The black women funding stats are far worse. Mm -hmm. Um, But then on top of that, like, when it's a service or a product for women, when it's the men making the decisions, there is this kind of like confusion. Like we had this big thing that in lockdown, the entire beauty industry closed for way longer than ever, like all hospitality, everything. Like you can understand why some people would be like, come on, it's not important. But it's also like, right, but when you're closing down an entire multi-billion dollar industry because the people making decisions obviously don't use this industry and yet you're looking at however like much percentage of your population who are. I can imagine when you're a black woman going, Going into that room and also saying kind of like, we're making something so people can get their nails done. And it's they're like, (laughs) I literally had this one guy say to me, oh, is this where I'll send my the girls who I'm dating to to prep for our dates? Like and I was like, what is going on right now? Like, this is absolutely (laughs) insane. And I was also 25 at the time. Right. So I was met with. All of also, the that's isms. So inappropriate. No, 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 no. The ina- no. That's that's like a level one of right, inappropriate, right. and the scale goes like to ten. Right. And it was it was really crazy. It mm. was. But you know, I will say that I feel very lucky that we were able to get a lot of kind of angels and friends and family mm. in our round as well, which is obviously incredible. But it also shouldn't have to be that way. Yes, I mean. It, in the world of VC now, which is kind of where I I, I play a large role as an angel investor, mm-hmm. there are still so many nuances within the venture capital world. And, you know, if you're in that early stage, like, you kind of have to have buy-in from the friends and 
family in order for the VCs to really be like, okay. Which is also like the whole concept of a friends and family round is the most insane thing you can even imagine. 100%, especially because most entrepreneurs who are minorities do not have a social network that can provide that capital. Well, I think that's also kind of part of the conversation as in like 2.8% of funding going to women is the highest ever year of VC funding, which is just like, I mean, if we had 97.2% of anything going to men in any other industry, there'd be like uproar. And you think it's like a niche and then you're like, but everyone's employed by a business, right? Or self-employed. Every single business starts from entrepreneurship. So like, if that's the stats we're stemming from, no wonder there's, you know, gender pay gap, maternity issues, like all of these various different things. But then it's kind of so insane when you then look at it being like, even if that was a kind of quota and mandatory taken up to 20% of all investments, if you also look at not increasing women's networks, there's going to be a lag between putting more money into women's businesses and it performing in the same way. Because if you're putting money into, as you say, a minority-led business, the chances are there's not going to be the exact same network in terms of like being having grown up with, you know, people who have a huge amount of money or insane contacts or, you know, know the tech and are happy to do it for free, all of these things. So for every penny, you're getting far less in terms of network, which 100%. is also why they go for the white men again and again right. and again. Right. We have to deal with that lag. Like we have to stomach that lag a bit to be able to get to the point. You can't just put money in and then be like, but it didn't perform well. And by the way, it outperformed. Like women it, and, and, and minority-led businesses outperform. They do outperform. And before anyone says that's due to a smaller sample size, give us more money and we will show you it's exactly, not. Like, exactly. It's also like there has to be a period of time where it's like, okay, but we're going to have to do this even if for every penny there's less network. Right. So I just want to quickly go back to the beginning of Beautified App. Yeah. I'd love to know kind of how you got that original idea and the point that you then decided, okay, got this idea, you know, need to find someone to do it with or need to find someone to build the tech and then actually kind of hitting the round running. I've always been a beauty girl growing up. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the ballet world. I was like introduced to makeup as a young age. I just love beauty products. I love getting my hair done, all the things. So growing up in New York, I like knew, you know, the salons I like going to, the hairstylists, the salon owners, all those types of things. And then when I was moving into this corporate life, I was basically like, okay, I don't want to have to spend time calling around. I just want to be able to book it on my phone. This app called Hotel Tonight had just come out. Mm -hmm. And essentially, I was like, I need to skin Hotel Tonight and create it for the beauty industry. So I was telling Brendan that I had this idea and he was like, this sounds really cool. Yeah. He's like, I actually used to be neighbors with this girl who's my friend. It's like, she talks about things like this all the time. Like, I feel like you should have a chat with her. And I was like, okay, cool. I met up with this girl, Annie Evans, who um, turned out to be my Mm co-founder. We basically just got on immediately. She basically had the same idea. Right. And we were like, okay. So then we talked to a lot of people kind of in the tech industry. We were trying to find someone who who could build the app. You know, at this point in time, the tech boom was really starting to blow up in New York. Like the startup scene was feeling like hot and like networking like crazy. And people were just like excited about it. So it was kind of easy to get access to to a list of names of people who I could then reach out to and say, can you give me a quote for, you know, this UX and, uh, you know, potentially a designer who can, like, you know, give us a really beautiful 
you know, design, image, and brand, whatever. So ended up like, you know, vetting a bunch of people, da, 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 met our other co-founder, this guy, who at first we thought like, okay, he's just a bit quirky, a little right. rough around the edges, but he seems like he'll be kind of the one leading the product. Right. And he, I think, definitely saw opportunity in myself and Annie. Mm-hmm. I had at this point in my life like a pretty good social profile. Right. And Annie was a hustler. And right. I would say so was I. But fast forward, when we were doing our operating agreement, he withheld equity from us because he basically said that since he already had the tech done, he's coming with a lot more than we were to the table. I didn't have Virginia in the room, right? right. I didn't really know how to negotiate that for myself. And so I kind of got pushed in a corner and had to take the equity that I was given. Normally in a situation like that, it should have been 33%, 33%, mm. 33 Yeah, or, you know, it's agreed way before and it's kind of like, we're, we're you know, we're doing... over years, yeah, whatever. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So we didn't do that. And he took a majority of the equity and then Annie and I had the same amount, which I think was just under 20% each, which is crazy. Right, wow. And then when we also, like, needed to get paid, like, he made this whole thing about how Annie and I, like, shouldn't take a salary, but he was going to take a salary. I mean, when I say these things out loud now, it's actually horrifying Mm -hmm. looking back at the toxic masculinity that we dealt with and, like, the toxic work environment and And the intimidation, the intimidation, the bullying, all of it. And so eventually, when we went through the fundraising process and Annie and I brought in every penny. Right. Was he pitching with you guys? No. And we actually told him he could not pitch with us, otherwise we weren't going to get the cash. Mm -hmm. And that literally ended up being very obvious when we closed the round and he brought in zero dollars. Right. And it was obvious that our investors were really investing in Annie and I. Yeah. When that happened, we went to all of our investors and we said, listen, we need to get this guy out of our company. He's completely micromanaging. He's not letting us excel in the the places we need to excel. Mm -hmm. He's created a horrible work environment. We're honestly scared to go into the office. And at this point, we also realized that he was bipolar. So we knew we were also dealing with someone who could potentially be manic and you know, having a mental illness in the workplace that wasn't being managed properly. We kind of were planning this coup, if you will. Mm -hmm. Was this before or after the round closed? After the round. And we went to all of our investors and had them help us make the plan of action. And I assume as part of the round, because for people who don't know, with closing a round, you kind of agree on all of these things. Like you agree on like, if one person has to leave because of X, Y, and Z, they... Actually, no. Before, yes, that is true. But we didn't allude to anything prior to our round. In fact, we weren't even sure... Yeah, you wanted to close it first. Yeah, we wanted to close it fast, but we also like weren't even sure if we were going to be able to like really get him out of the company. Right. So then once we like felt like, okay, we have a full cheerleading squad squad of investors behind us who we've met, you know, make great relationships with through this fundraising process. We went to them and we said, listen, we we have this issue and we need, we don't know what to do about it. And they they were all like, you need to get him out. Mm -hmm. So we made this plan of action. And when it was time for us to literally serve him his papers, I kid you not, an hour before we served him papers... He served us papers. Right. And we were completely shut out of our back end of our company, no access to email, anything. He ran the product, and he completely shut us out. Fuck. 
no, no, no. It was, I, it was Thanksgiving, and I had to go to a friend's Thanksgiving. I will never forget. I had to leave Thanksgiving early. I went to my friend's bar, and I had the classic New York moment of sitting at a bar, crying my eyes out, drinking so much tequila, literally like thinking my life right was over. Right. Certainly, my life as an entrepreneur dead in the water. Right. So you've got investment, oh, and then you've you not know. Me- not to mention. A lot of my friends' money. Right. No, that is fucking terrifying. Like, I, 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 I'm, it was insane. And so we then had to call each one of our investors, let them know what was going on. Then we went through down the path of arbitration, had to like, I spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in um, arbitration with this guy. And it went absolutely nowhere until finally, one of our main investors, he held our hand throughout this process. And thank God for him. And I talk about him a lot. Tony Florence, who who's a principal at NEA, he he really was an angel to us. Um, And he at the time invested in Glam Squad. Right. So he said, okay, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have Glam Squad acquire Beautified. It'll be for no money. But at least we'll have a press release. You and Annie can then go to Glam Squad for a year, year and a half, whatever. And Peter will be out and the story will be done. And this part of the chapter will be closed. Which is also like, I think that people, I'm not sure whether people can truly understand how the effect on your mental health of like and then combining that with being in the public eye and having anything go wrong I mean anytime there's been anything kind of like serious that I think I've thought has kind of you know would really threaten I've found it just like the most anxiety inducing thing in the world like as in like I literally think I'm going to die no beyond beyond and I thought (laughs) you know having to call going through the exercise of having to call each one of my investors and letting them know that this rogue manic guy has taken over and shut us out. I mean, it was six months of my life that I was depressed and I just thought I was a full failure. I right. didn't know I didn't know how I was going to pick myself up and keep going. Definitely failed entrepreneur. It was a truly a nightmare. By the way, that deal with Glam Squad didn't happen because right. this guy basically was his ego was so hurt that he wasn't going to be going to glam squad etc he just squashed it he didn't even consider it and you know what happened to beautified is that it just fucking drowned and by the way no one knows where that fucking guy is really no idea oh my god and i remember like probably like Seven months later, I was plotting something crazy. Like I wanted this guy's like legs broken. I swear <laughs> to God. And my husband, who was still my boyfriend at the time, was like, "You know, this is really crazy. You, you're spending so much like energy and focus on this. It's really negative, and you know, you gotta you gotta get out of right. this." And and I just thought, like, but how? Like, I don't understand. I'm so, I'm still so angry. You know what I mean? And, and I'm, by the way, I feel like I've never gone through a breakup that was as full body experience than yeah. the, the, the. I mean, I've had one similar experience and I, I, I mean, I can fully relate. I literally, like, daily, I was convinced I would just drop dead. Yeah. From like the shame, the embarrassment, the stress, the, like, the fact that just like, Everything. Everything. So at that point, I had gone through all that. I was in my revenge moment. Right. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah. And the legs. The yeah. legs gone. Yeah. <laughs> and Brendan looks at me. He goes, you know, the best revenge you're going to have on this right. guy is for you to be successful and for your face to be everywhere right. that he can't escape you. Mm-hmm. If someone had told me when I was young that taking the high road was going to be one of the more difficult things that you have to do in your life, but mm-hmm. you have to be a professional at it, mm-hmm. I would have been like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. But that's literally what it is. Like, it sucks always having to take the high road, but at the end of the day, it's really fucking you also. Important. You feel so good when you're out of that moment. I mean, I think it's so easy to, especially because, like, for something like that, that traumatic and that big to happen, you can be stuck in that for a year, for, like, two years. Like, you can be be really stuck in that headspace. Beyond. And I find myself telling this story now a lot, especially when I wrote my book in 2019, like... I was going on a book tour and I was telling this story all the time and how I I rose out of this crazy moment of self-doubt and just full kind of failure mode into, you know, a budding entrepreneur on social media that I didn't even know could have been a thing. Like, Brendan literally was like, you know, if you take half the amount of energy that you're spending on this guy and focus on this thing on your phone that people are into and talking to you about and building and I mean this is 2013 right he's like what is Instagram even he's like but it looks like people are really kind of digging the stuff you're talking about like just give half of the energy to that and see what can come out of that and that's literally what sparked what I you know say is like my true career after this you know tech failure I was like okay well interesting it's tech in a different way and I was kind of you know going back to my roots almost it was the things that I was already doing and already caring about and trying to treat myself well that I was talking about and I'm like Mm -hmm. oh well this actually feels good right and I hadn't felt good in months right and yeah I can completely understand that and I mean I think it's such a rule to live by like that the best revenge is always just like concentrating on yourself and doing well like if you see me suddenly doing loads of great things just know I've just been through something yeah exactly (laughs) I'm literally like right I can do this like I just needed that extra push 100% and not to mention like I feel like who even doubted that I was going to like create a company who were like you know haters from the beginning right like that fuel has always and still to this day like always fuels me I I guess that would have been so hard as well 
well because you're like the last thing you want to do is prove haters right yeah and in that moment oh, i'm no. sure one of the things you would have been thinking is like <laughs> oh 100 percent, 100 percent. every vc who had said no to me you were like yeah i was like yeah they're right you know <laughs> which they obviously weren't and it was obviously such a difficult situation and so how did you pick yourself up from kind of quote-unquote failure yeah i really just kind of focused my energy back to DJing and kind of what was going on on social media, but not in a way that I I didn't have any intention. I didn't know what that was going to turn into. Mm -hmm. I basically just focused on my health and wellness goals, which I had, you know, that when that moment when I was burnt out and mm -hmm. had moved into that corporate life, I had basically made a promise to myself that I was going to live the happiest and healthiest version of myself. Mm -hmm. My grandmother had previously passed away from anorexia. I knew it was something that she always wished for me. And I really wanted to get back to that place. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to focus on myself. I'm going to do the things that make me feel really good, like cooking for myself, mm -hmm. going to the gym, working mm -hmm. on my mental health, exploring what my gut microbiome is. I had just kind of healed my skin through like this whole gut situation. I had mm -hmm. something called leaky gut, mm -hmm. um, which we now know about. But in 2012, right. 11 was like, like, what, what is that? Like? <laughs> and I was like, like, I have what? Like yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I was really kind of on this health journey. I was, you know, again, I, I had just been in the beauty industry heavy, meeting all of these spa owners mm -hmm. and all of these executives in that world. And I had all of a sudden this access to a beauty world that as an enthusiast before, only I had dreamt of, right? So I was like, okay, I'm going to like lean into this world of health. Um, my mom also grew up like a vegetarian, raised us a vegetarian, is like, you know, one step below a Reiki master, has like been doing acupuncture since she was a teenager and exposed me to all these like worlds of holistic modalities. And I just was like fascinated. I was on my, my healing journey and I just like went down that road and started using Instagram to showcase that. Right. And... Things started to pick up, and I remember, so I'm out at the West Way, just for those who know New York in that time, and I remember, like, my, like, club friends all of a sudden were asking me, like, oh, I saw you did that move in the gym, like, what's that about? Mm -hmm. And I was like, or like, oh, um, I saw you just spoke to that doctor, like, how was that? And I was like, oh, like, all of a sudden people, like, the conversation changed mm -hmm. and they wanted to know about the things I was posting about on social media. And I was like, wow, okay. It look, seems like this um, combo is quite sticky. Right. And I started using this hashtag HBFit, mm -hmm. which were my initials, but also I knew that health and beauty were the same synonymous for right. Hannah Bronfman. And actually in college, I because I went to a school that was really local to New York, all of my friends from out of town used to ask me for doctor recommendations, okay. restaurants, salon and spas. And so I always in the back of my head wanted to have this um, health and beauty, Hannah Bronfman's health and beauty right. thing. So I was like, okay. That was like always in the back of my mind. And um, I started using this hashtag HBFit. The conversation started to get really sticky. And this was like kind of at the moment where blogs and bloggers started to come into the world. And I thought to myself, well, 
why don't I just start a .com and see what happens? And so I started, I turned HB Fit from a hashtag into mm-hmm. a .com and we became an online community for like-minded people who wanted to know about all things health, beauty, and fitness. Mm-hmm. And I was very much learning as I go. I was, you know, my whole approach was I'm a guinea pig. I want to try everything right. and I'll let you know if it's worth your time, if it's a load of bullshit, what the trends are, etc. And to be honest, I was the only black girl I saw in the health and wellness right. world from a media standpoint. And I think some corporations saw that as well. Right. And I'll never forget I'll, when Nike, Nike came to me and they're like, we want you to run like our like half marathon. And I'm like, oh my God, this is fucking amazing. I'd be like, great, but no. I, well, I, I was like, I don't know how <laughs> so to run. So nice. I was like, I don't know I how have? to run. So I, I used to be a sprinter in high school, but I, right. there's no way I could run a long, no. long distance. Yeah. So I thought to myself, okay, I need to hire a run coach. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was, like, working – I had been working out of WeWork. And I remember, you know, I, I like, tweeted about some health bar called Health Warrior. It was, like, a chia seed bar. It's very New York. I, it's, right. It's the U.S. Um, and I, I tweeted them. And I remember the community manager tweeted me back. And he we started talking in the DM. And he was, like, oh, yeah, I work out of this – um, we work downtown. I was like, oh, I work in the same one. Let's meet up for a coffee. Mm-hmm. I met this guy. He was absolutely gorgeous. His physical physique was impeccable. He used to be a football guy. He was now becoming a run coach. And he comes from a family of doctors. And I'm like, bro, can you teach me how to run? Like, He's like, yeah. And my, and my boyfriend, Brendan, was on tour. And mm-hmm. I remember calling him like, I've met the most amazing guy. He's like an Adonis. He's going to teach me how to run. And my boyfriend's like, that who went the down fuck well. is this? Like, I'm like, you're going to love him. <laughs> he's like, so, <laughs> so this guy, Joe Holder, who is now known as Ocho System, mm-hmm. who is an amazing trainer, um, at the time was this community manager for this health brand. He starts teaching me how to run. Brendan comes back to New York. I introduce them. Brendan is immediately like enamored by this guy. Mm-hmm. Brendan starts to get into the world of talent management. He had already been managing this um, music guy named Theophilus London. That's mm-hmm. who he was on tour with at the time. And he had just started this agency with this other guy, and they were representing me, and then they started representing Joe. And um, Joe becomes a Nike master trainer. Incredible. Under Brendan's management and all the things. So I basically did this half marathon with Nike, and right after the half marathon, by the way, Nike never paid me for that, and I just thought it was an amazing look. Right. And my first real like moment in getting a, a look from a corporate company in the wellness fitness world because I was getting that look from the DJ side but it wasn't translating over to Mm -hmm. wellness and I'll never forget after that um, half marathon Under Armour called me and they were like we'd love for you to do like a post on social media we'll pay you for this and I was like whoa (laughs) this is like my first paid Mm -hmm. fitness thing Mm -hmm. on the Instagram on the Instagram like I was like whoa this is crazy and I did that and immediately got a call from Nike saying they wouldn't be working with me again and that they were really disappointed oh fuck off you didn't to see (laughs) that I had done something for Under Armour and then I was like 
like, what? Like, fuck. And then I was like, fuck, okay, I got to get Under Armour to, like, get me, like, give me a deal. And, like, right. be, I got to be in with the Under Armour because I just fucked my shit over with Nike. And Under Armour wasn't calling. And I was like, what have I just done? Like, oh my God, the cheek of Nike. No, the cheek of it all. I was like, what? But I can imagine at that stage, like, I would have been like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was like, freaking <laughs> out. I was like, wait, I'm so confused. Like, I'm so, like, yeah. kind of. I mean, it was early days for, like, right. brand shit. Right. And, like, and then I remember that was right before Christmas, and I was, like, pretty bummed out. And mm. I was, like, I hope I haven't, like, ruined my chances with these, like, oh. corporate companies <laughs> and, like, whatever. And I remember right after the new year, um, Adidas called of me. Of course. <laughs> and uh, they they came to me with a one-year deal. And Incredible. I ended up being with Adidas for six years. Incredible. Yeah, and that was pretty much the skyrocket of my, like, wellness yeah. career as, like, a fitness Instagram or, like, you know, whatever, influencer and whatever. It was just – that was, like – kind of what propelled me forward in that in that industry. Yeah, that's such an incredible story. And in terms of HB Fit, did you make it into an app? Over the summer, we mm-hmm. launched a content app. So now we have paying subscribers for exclusive content. Mm-hmm. As you can tell, I love tech. Mm-hmm. And I've really been thinking a lot about Web3. And I feel like HB Fit is is moving towards what will be a Web3 experience eventually mm-hmm. and kind of like the world of tokens. Like right now we have subscribers who get perks from being subscribers, which is essentially like a token, right? Tokens, unless they're, you know, for art purposes and trading, they're for ex- experiential mm-hmm. things. So you're unlocking experiences already by being a subscriber. So I feel like we're just kind of one step away from like right. having a token mm-hmm. and moving into a Web3 platforms. And, you know, to be honest, as someone who now looking back 10 years ago was a pioneer of like, you know, Instagram influencers and Web2, I just feel like it's time to move into a different direction. I don't know where Instagram is going to be in five years. Mm -hmm. You know, TikTok is amazing, but it's I have to unlearn everything I've learned in order to make content there. You know, long-form content and storytelling is what I truly love to do. There's not really a platform anymore for that. So Mm -hmm. I thought I'd make it myself. And it's not – this isn't like a Patreon, Mm -hmm. right? This is my own app that I own. And I think that is starting to look like what maybe the future of influencing is. Yeah. I don't know. Again, like I'm just going down this road yeah. that I've been paving for myself without real direction from anyone else. And we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. And in a preview for HP Fit, was it 2.0? So you said that you wanted to kind of, you wanted to make it, release it because you felt you couldn't be authentically yourself on Instagram anymore. Yeah. Tell me about that. Owning the influencer and what content buckets I, you know, create content in and the brands that hire me, you know, it's a very PG. It's a very PG world. You know, I work with all sorts of like P&G brands, like everything's got certain legal around it. But what people don't know about me is that I've been smoking weed every day since I was 15. And when I was with Adidas, like obviously couldn't talk about that. But I very much believe in weed is medicine Mm -hmm. and uh, there's just so much stigma attached to it. And I'm definitely trying to change that. But at the same time, I work with all these companies like Johnson & Johnson, et cetera, et cetera, that I would not be allowed to authentically be my whole self on Instagram 
and still get these endorsements. Right. Now that I'm a mom and I have to be just fully present and et cetera, like I'm just done compartmentalizing myself. Right. I'm just, I'm over it. It's so easy on social media to want to be so cautious all the time because we see the mistakes of people not being cautious. But I will say that if you're a good person and you make decisions for good reasons and you kind of know that, yeah. you kind of can justify like every, you know, if something yeah. came across wrong or if, you know, you do something like smoke weed and there's a reason for it and like all of these things and or you just believe in it, whatever it might be. You're always, there's always going to be polarized opinions yes. and you're always going to upset some people, all of this. I firmly believe that if you're a good person and you make good decisions and you make moral decisions and all of that, you can always back it up. But it is hard to live your life on the defense. Oh my God, as in that doesn't that doesn't mean that it makes it any easier when you're kind of like, I mean, opting out of having to defend yourself is, right. a, is a really, right. really powerful thing to do. I will say that there were so many years that I was like terrified of like, I know I'm a good person. I know I'm like, probably one of my biggest problems is actually like being painfully like people pleasy, like all of yeah. these different things. So it's like, I know I'm not nasty. I know I'm like a yeah. moral person. I know I care about things, all of this. I for so long was like, oh, I'm terrified of what this person will think, what this person will think, what this person will think. And actually like, it's just been so refreshing to kind of like have this realization of just being like, oh my God, people are going to hate me. Some people are going to love me. Totally. Some people are going to hate me. But also opting out is so I mean I opted out for literally like two years I was like I will give you no substance right <laughs> you will right. see like this right and like that is all because I am exhausted and my friends used to say like Hannah you are like the best comedian on the internet because if people only knew that like you were so stoned while talking about your like <laughs> matcha and whatever like it would just add so much but like I was like well I can't right I can't do that you know what I mean and so my my like team my friends everyone knows like the real me and I was playing that down for right. many years. And have you felt like liberated since you've kind of stopped that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've definitely I've definitely felt liberated by sharing my fertility journey, mm -hmm. which was something that I like suffered alone for mm -hmm. a while and made me absolutely crazy. And then also being open about like my use with marijuana for sure. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about your fertility journey. Yeah. I know you've spoken about that openly online and mm -hmm. I know that it's something you really struggled with. When did that kind of start and what was that experience like? Yeah, so basically after my husband and I got married in 2017, we started trying pretty immediately for a kid. Mm -hmm. My husband's eight years older than me and he's always kind of been ready to go. After about six months of trying and it wasn't really happening, I decided I was like, listen, I'm a pretty type A person. I was like, I'm just going to go to a fertility specialist and right. check check everything out. And and everything looked fine. And everything looked fine with my husband. So I'm like, okay, well, they were like, maybe you should just keep trying naturally. And I was like, okay. So we tried for a little bit longer naturally. Still wasn't happening. I was like, okay, guys, like I'm ready to kind of go down this. What, what's next? Right. right. And so um, we went through that journey of all the things you try before going to IVF, right? Like it's different types of hormones to help you ovulate. Mm -hmm. It's like timed intercourse. Then there's IUIs, which is like the turkey baster method, which I hate that term, but <laughs> for lack of a better understanding. Wait, sorry. An I don't know about that. So an IUI is when they literally <laughs> putting sperm inside of you to help because yeah. sometimes it's like maybe the sperm is having a hard time navigating mm -hmm. up the cervix, whatever. 
Sometimes they're not strong swimmers, whatever. So IUIs are a good way of – I actually don't think they're that effective, so I wouldn't even say it's a good way. But it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a common step in the fertility journey prior to going to IVF. Mm-hmm. So then I end up getting pregnant on this, like, hormone that I was on called Clomid, and I end up having a miscarriage. Then we go down another, like, seven months of IUIs and da-da-da, and, you know, I went through – so many different iterations of, you know, not drinking caffeine and not drinking alcohol, not smoking um, marijuana, not working out past ovulation and just like doing right. all these doing things everything. that actually made me feel insane. Right. And moving further and further away from like myself. Right. right. Then we basically decided, okay, we're going to do IVF. And mm-hmm. it was a really hard decision, I think, just because – I never thought that that was going to be my narrative. Right, especially if you're being checked up and people are saying it's fine. Exactly. Like there's there's nothing wrong. Exactly. And for you to spend, how long was it in total you were trying to conceive? Uh, about two years. Right, so to spend that time almost treating yourself as like a machine that yes. you need to prep and you yeah. need to do, you need to live along these lines so that you can just do and what you probably see as basic biology because I guess everyone just of expects course. it. And not to mention I was on hormones for basically, you know, 18 months Ooh. that like made me feel crazy, right. ma- like definitely changed my body and right. yet I'm still maintaining this perception on social media of like health guru, fitness girl, blah, blah, blah. And I'm having, I'm struggling. I'm struggling mentally. I'm struggling physically. And I'm, I feel like I'm like living a lie. At what point did you start to talk about your journey? Yeah. So a couple of months before starting IVF, which was a couple of months after my miscarriage, I decided I was going to share this journey because right. we had started sharing this information with our friends. And all of a sudden, all of our friends were like, we had a miscarriage too. Oh my God, yeah. Or Brendan was like finding all these husbands who were like, you know, we're dealing with it too. And I think also for Brendan, he was definitely struggling emotionally as well. And I feel like we we do leave men out of this conversation mm-hmm, a lot. Sure. And so it was important for him to have a community of people mm-hmm. that he could really talk to. And, and for me, you know, I was so frustrated, especially to my girlfriends who weren't going through this, weren't trying to get pregnant and had no idea on about how to relate. Well, it's also that you spend your entire life <laughs> trying not to get pregnant oh, and, and then, then expect to get to this point and just be like, right, we've decided we're going to have a baby. Right. I'm super healthy. I've done everything right. All right. of these things. Right. Right. And then you you do what you meant to do and nothing happens. Like I can imagine that just being not only exhausting, but like debilitating, especially then when you're prepping yourself literally as like a machine to yeah. like make this happen. Yeah. And then also at the same time, your expertise online is about being healthy. Totally. And I can imagine there were feelings of like feeling like a fraud, like all of these different things when you're like, I'm literally telling you how to be healthy and I can't make this happen. Yeah, it was definitely like a dark moment in um, all aspects for all of those reasons. And so when we finally decided to go down the 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 route of IVF, when I finally like just accepted that this was going to be our narrative, I really wanted to be as present and as good as I could be at doing IVF. Like I was like, okay, I'm all in. Like how am I going to like, you know, I'm going to be a boss at the shots. I'm going to like 
you know, prep myself for my retrieval. You know what? I'm excited to get the retrieval over with because I'm going to smoke weed and chill out on my couch and drink bone broth for three days afterwards. And like, that's okay. Hold my calls. Like, this is just like what it is. Mm -hmm. And we actually had a really successful outcome with IVF. And I was, I remember saying to my doctor, like, how did I get such a good result if I wasn't getting pregnant? Now, it turns out, that for our situation, my eggs have a thick coating around them, and that only—they've been trying to protect only, you your whole exactly. life. Exactly, only <laughs> sperm with a super amount of enzymes would be able to penetrate my eggs. And my husband had normal amount of enzymes, and I'm like, but again, we would have never known this no, unless sure. we had done IVF, and we were lucky to have an amazing amount of embryos and then after that process I just took four months and I said I just I need to feel my body again without Mm -hmm. hormones Mm -hmm. I need to just I've been at this for two years I just Mm -hmm. need to have a mental Mm -hmm. clarity check Um, I want to travel I want to go to Japan and I want to eat all the raw fish possible before I come home and do my first implantation Mm -hmm. And that was kind of what our fertility journey looked like. And once I came out and told people about my story and then my miscarriage, and it just became one of these things that people wanted to talk to me about. And I just got comfortable with it. And I got comfortable with it quickly. And Mm -hmm. um, I actually felt a lot of comfort in the conversations I was having with that community. Um, And, you know, I I also heard a lot of stories that were a lot harder than my own. Right. And it all just puts everything in perspective. Mm -hmm. Like, I was completely unaware of this world that I was then propelled into and so grateful for Mm -hmm. um, because it needs to be normalized. You know, the access to care needs to come down in cost. There's so much legislation to mm-hmm. be done. There's work within this realm of of helping women gain access and families gain access. And there's just a lot of nuances in this industry that need changing. And I'm I'm happy to be an advocate for that. I, you know, between also what's going on, obviously, in our country with the overturning right. of Roe versus Wade and and the, the black maternal health crisis that's happening mm-hmm. in our country, mm-hmm. a black woman is 12 times more likely to die in New York State. That is sickening. And this is the state I live in. It's crazy. And so I learned so much about all of this. I I mean, you know, I I started working with organizations. I mean, it opened my eyes to a whole world that I was was pretty ignorant on because I just wasn't in that place in my life yet. I really do hope that we start looking at family planning as more of a preventative situation than just like trying to fix a problem after the fact. Right. And it does really put the onus on the women as well when it's kind of like well if it doesn't work like you better go find out and like sort that out like yeah. it doesn't seem like there are many paths especially i can imagine without nationalized healthcare in the us like yeah. it doesn't sound like there are many paths where you can just kind of be like this is the problem can you help with the solution it's like go and find all the potential solutions and potential problems yourself yeah, yeah. and then also like maybe don't talk about it because yeah, if you're especially exactly. if you're like freshly married everyone's right. asking when are you going to have kids right. like when are you going to have another one like all of these different totally. things and it's like 
I literally like. <laughs> no, it's like it's a it's horrible. It's a cycle that it's like so hard to break. I actually invested in this company called Kind Body, which mm-hmm. I, I basically like. I, I like got on the phone with this founder and I like told her my story and she was like, I would love for you to be a champion of what we're mm. doing. And they they are um, a family planning service, uh, like a physical place that you can go into. They do all sorts of family planning, including gynecological stuff. Mm. They have really invested in their proprietary tech so they are able to bring the entire cost down Mm. of all of the things to help access for women and families and anyone else who wants to pursue having a family. And now they've actually been able to really hone in on their enterprise business and they are part of like insurance policies for large corporations. So they actually, they just announced that they got Walmart, Amazon, and Disney. And so they've built now a facility in Orlando for Disney. They've built a facility in Bentonville, Arkansas for Walmart. And they've built a facility now in Toronto for Amazon. And so being a part of that story and helping people everywhere gain access and democratizing Mm -hmm. access to family planning is something I'm super passionate about. And again, this is just because of like a personal thing that I went through, having a platform to be able to advocate for it and Mm -hmm. then, you know, putting my dollars where I think it really matters. Right. Well, honestly, I think that is such an incredible thing to talk about. And I can tell like how many people have resonated with it online, even just for one person who's had a miscarriage or is struggling to conceive or like any of these things, just to be able to scroll down Instagram and not just see the new baby pregnancy announcements and actually have that, you know, even if it's kind of, obviously you've, you've been extremely fortunate to end up having a kid and like being able to do that and also caveat it with being like, but also this wasn't easy and this yeah. didn't just happen by, yeah. you know, just like trying and getting pregnant. Yeah. And, and we're, I, think- I think we're also seeing, you know, so many more women who are, you know, dealing with PCOS and endometriosis. And we know just those two things alone mm-hmm. are taking doctors years to I diagnose. Mean, yeah. No, I mean, eight years is the actual <laughs> amount of diagnosis it takes someone with endo- yeah. endometriosis. And and it's like we've just normalized all of the painful periods and all of these things that are not well, normal and actually very significant signs that something is not correct. Well, I've suffered since I was 12. And I remember that kind of from like when I was 12, 13, I was put on birth control because mm. my periods were so painful that I was like couldn't see sometimes. Mm. I was like in so much pain that I couldn't. Oh. Oh like my God. I had to miss a GCSE because I genuinely could not do anything. I was having ultrasounds all the time when I was like 13 and then, you know, spent like nine, 10 months before I was referred to anything. Then, end- because obviously we're nationalized as well, so it is free. Right. Then got referred and I remember walking into this room and I'd been terrified because I'd had so many problems with my ovaries and with my uterus and like all of this. And I was 13. Like, I've I've just, like, I don't even know what a period is at this stage. Like, as in, well, I've, you know, just, yeah, like, yeah. I got it a it's, few years before. But then I'm kind of like at this stage where I'm like, am I meant to feel like I'm literally like dying once a month and walked into this room and this doctor I sat down 13 fucking terrified and this doctor looked me up and down he goes well you're not fat and you're not hairy so you don't have PCOS and that was my experience with the healthcare service with with that and I was like my little sister as well she was like on the floor like on the cold bathroom floor every single period for a week with like a fever and couldn't do anything vomiting everywhere and we'd kind of be the same and literally doctors are like periods they're tough 
And having had that since then, and like I've, you know, I actually weirdly ended up the only way I found out like further information was because I've had, what would it be, 13 years now of like, I mean, I've been on birth control the entire time because it's been, I mean, which I don't want to do. Like, I don't want to be on hormones for that much time. But to kind of deal with those issues and then to get to a point where I only got any type of further diagnosis because I'd had so many issues that I'm luckily in the financial situation where I could go, I went to go get a consultation for egg freezing Mm -hmm. because I was like, I've had so many issues. I've constantly, like, I'd had like cancer scares I'd had like all of these different things because they were like what the fuck is going on right but no one was like "Mm, could be these things that are actually really quite common right doesn't like incredibly painful people like I watched a program on it the other day and someone was saying like I have considered suicide many times because it's so painful and it's like telling women this is normal no and me only getting further diagnosis based on the fact that I went to a incredibly expensive egg freezing appointment at the age of 24 yeah like insane. is insane and yeah. that was my best option to get the ultrasound the care the feedback because I was paying so much money mm-hmm. to be able to be in a position where I would then pay money to store because I'm just like I, I don't even know if it works <laughs> like as oh in like I don't God. even know and for that to in a in a country where even for us like healthcare is nationalized like I can't even imagine here the effects it would have yeah. because you know being 12 I'm not even sure what the healthcare like the health insurance situation would be totally. and then you have an existing problem like all of these things but like for that to take 13 years in the UK and then to only ever get answers based on literally paying out my horse for like for for something that I think I'm just going to take this into my own hands because I want to have children one day and I want to be able to freeze my eggs so that I can get to that situation like like 24 year olds aren't usually in this position where they can afford to do that and like for me to have to go to that I mean it is so shocking yeah I mean I came off birth control I remember for like a month when I was when I just come out of university so probably when I was like 22 I was literally like the fact that I can't function Without and I'd it. consider myself quite a strong like I couldn't yeah. so when I when I went and got that um ultrasound for the egg freezing situation they were like have you been in a lot of pain recently and I was like I'm always like, yeah it's, it's a lot of pain a lot of the time and they were like you have a huge amount of internal bleeding you've had a huge cyst rupture probably looks like about a month ago like were you in pain and I'm like I'm always the fact that I'm always in enough pain that when something ruptures inside me and like I have internal bleeding like that's insane understand there's probably a p- problem with like the healthcare service if for women we're seeing that as like periods are hard right it's unbelievable like imagine if there was a week of the month that men couldn't like oh in that situation, like... Let me tell you, period care would be free. <laughs> There'd be a clinic on every corner, like, fucking 7-Eleven. <sighs> it's insane. Yeah. That's anyway. a really wild story. Yeah. You should check out this um, book called Flow Living and Woman Code by a, a woman named Elisa Vitti. Really? She's all about um, kind of, like, cycle syncing and, like, there are certain foods and f- certain things that you can be doing at different phases of your of your cycle to help minimize the pain um and she very much talks about that though these the painful periods that is right. not normal no it's not and and we <laughs> cannot be. try to normalize that mm. i think you know obviously one of the larger issues at least in 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 the u.s is like women haven't even been in medical research until 1993 <laughs> by the way there are no medical research papers on how women 
metabolize pain. We don't know how women have pain. So when you take an Advil, that dosage, just a little smaller than what it would be for a man. Because that's what they think. <laughs> no, it's actually fucking mind-blowing. It, because what, women are too complicated? Like, it's it's... I mean, I don't know if you just saw this week. They, the New York Times, put out an article about um, the clit, the clit, and basically how the clit is an organ that doctors don't even know about. And <laughs> no, no, like literally, <laughs> it's it's actually wild. But it's, it's so embarrassing. It is so embarrassing, it's and it's crazy. all it's all like fucking insane because yeah. it's like the fact that you're okay with like fifty percent of the population like not having a single understanding. It's also kind of like you know how like all healthcare is. Also, like, all symptoms are essentially research for white people. Yes. So, like, also you'll say, like, oh, you'll have a rash, you'll be pale, you'll be flushed. And right. it's like, okay, but, like, that's... Correct. Like, that's not gonna... Like, I am I mean, yeah, like, like my all... friend was really ill the other day and, like, half the symptoms were, like, oh, getting, like, blue around the lips. It's like, it's not gonna get blue around the lips. No, like, no, it's <laughs> not. No, it's not. And actually a lot, like, a lot of, like, topical dermological products are mm. very much based on white skin. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at the beauty industry now, there are so many ingredients that people are like, oh, like, use this. And you're like, actually, this is, like, by the way, I didn't even know this until as an adult now being in the beauty industry and investing in beauty companies and understanding like all of this research. But like when I was in my early twenties, like having someone prescribe me hydroquinone for melanated skin, it actually like has the opposite effect of what they're trying to do. So it's just like crazy how a lot of doctors who are just fine with like the lack of research and because, they think it's but, but like how how can you want to like further and obviously it's not all the fault is on the pr- practitioners themselves but it's like if you're wanting to like further an area of research or you want you're passionate about your science you're passionate about like discovering these things you've got a whole fucking jackpot of 50% of the population you I haven't know. looked into and I then know. like in terms of minority in ter- like anything I know. there is so much you could look into and actually make some great discoveries like you'll get yourself in some papers on totally totally like, i know i feel like you know there's there is a group of people though who like find it like oh well the research is going to take too long and but it's also seen as a niche like why is 50 oh, yeah. of the population seen as a niche uh, when we also have like the larger spending power within that industry right because... and we're also making the children yeah no it's crazy <laughs> it's crazy I feel like we could talk about this for the rest Me of time. Too. Thank you so, so much for coming on. This has been great. It's been you, such a good trial. Yeah, I genuinely this is an amazing like conversation. Just... I know we could just keep gabbing on here. Um, but this was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's been so great. Thank you so much for being so open. Um, I know people are going to be not only kind of inspired, but like just being able to see your whole journey from personal side to actually mm-hmm. seeing like the impacts on mental health behind, you know, everything that's happened. Yeah, yeah I just can't thank you enough for being so open. Of course. My, my pleasure. And thanks for having me. Thank you.